thank you for tuning in to the FFN Mentor of the Month podcast. Uh, this is where we hear from industry experts, career journeys, highs, lows, challenges, opportunities, everything in between. Uh, I'm Tom Rookyard and I'm joined by Mary Johnson. Mary, who was our first uh, first guest on the Mentor of the Month podcast? This month we were joined by Georgie Ailey, who is a, the Director of Food and Agribusiness at KPMG. She joined KPMG in August 2018. And prior to that, she was CEO of the Australian Institute of Food Science and Technology, and prior to that, Managing Director of the Grains and Legumes Nutrition Council. Georgie's been recognised uh, throughout her career as the Rabobank Emerging Agribusiness Leader of the Year, and also in 2014, she was named one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence. Georgie is also a past chair of the Future Farmers Network, so she's well known to us at FFN. As always, we'd love to get your input from the FFN members and community. Uh, so send any questions or suggestions for future guests to admin at futurefarmers.com.au, uh, but we might as well jump straight into the first one. I'm here this morning with Georgie Ailey, who's our first guest on the Mentor of the Month podcast for Future Farmers Network. Hi, Georgie. How are you? Hi, I'm well, Mary. Great. Well, I thought we'd start off with a pretty broad one. Tell us about where it all started for you. So where did it all start for me? I was a probably 15, 16-year-old Sydney-based girl who had this dream to ride horses for the rest of her life and um, become an equine vet. And, um, and that was my passion. That was all I wanted to do through the end of school. And uh, when I finished school, realised I was a much more social than studious individual and uh, found myself sitting at the end of year 12 with the marks that I probably wasn't expecting, thinking, what am I actually going to do next? And um, I ended up undertaking a course through Sydney Uni out in Orange, and I think that just opened up a whole new world for me into the broader world of agriculture, and here I am nearly 15 years later still working in an industry that I absolutely love. But you're not an equine vet. But I'm not an equine vet, <laughs> no. Apparently if you got high distinctions, you could go back, but uh, I chose to stay in Orange and, and do the full degree there. Great. So tell us about your role today, Georgie. Where yes, we? so, I, um, so we're at KPMG. This is where I work. So I started with KPMG in August last year. So we've got a specialist food and agribusiness practice uh, that runs nationally. So we've got about a team of 16. And the practice is only two and a half years old in the firm. So as a firm the size of KPMG, to give context, we've got 7,500 employees across Australia. We're one of 135 firms around the world. And as an organisation that had a very strong heritage in food and agri, um, we've always had clients in that space, very much from an audit business perspective. And I guess, you know, when you look at the opportunity in food and agriculture, uh, you look at the growth of the sector and the innovation and the advancements. And I think the vertical integration of the sector over the last sort of particularly three to five years, the firm realised we could be doing a lot more in that space um, and started the practice. So as a director, um, my job is basically sell jobs and, uh, and deliver jobs. So uh, I run probably anywhere from five to ten projects at any time. Uh, from small little jobs, less than, you know, 100,000 short turnaround to up to a million dollars plus. And, um, and there's so much variety. I mean, we uh, have a laugh, work hard, play hard, um, but really deliver some interesting things. So we're building dams in outback Queensland around Charters Towers, doing all the feasibility for a new dam there called Hell's Gate, right through to writing the sustainability strategy for the grains industry. Uh, through to helping the sugar industry explore blockchain and how they might derive payment for sustainable sugar. 
uh, right through to increasing air freight out of Cairns Airport and, you know, back looking at the supply chains in that part of the world. So really interesting, really diverse. And I think one of the key things for me is to see a firm like this back the sector and, um, and say, you know, we're really going to invest resources to help that industry grow. Yeah, great. Sounds absolutely diverse. Is that what really drives you to get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, it does. I think for me, I've always had this internal ethos that, you know, every day you go to work, you're adding value to the stakeholders that you work for. And so for me, having spent time, you know, working for organisations that looked after growers, right through to organisations that looked after or added value to the industry as a whole, uh, through to, you know, member-based organisations where you had an obligation to individuals, that if you didn't get up every day and feel that you were moving forward and adding value and opportunity and return to those stakeholders you worked for, then to me that drive and that passion was pretty quick to go. Uh, and that's always a good sign to say time to move on but I always feel that you never want to lose that passion so getting up every day having a great team that you want to go to work with um, having great clients that you know we do work shoulder to shoulder it's a corny saying sometimes but we really do we're in the trenches with our clients and just having that yeah vast experience and opportunity it's great yeah great I guess you know we're here it's a mentor podcast What's your experience of mentors? Have you had formal or informal mentoring experiences? And, you know, what are your recommendations? Yeah, so I think mentor is an interesting one. I'm both a mentor and a mentee, uh, and I've had varying experiences with mentors. When I look back over my experience with mentors, I think the first mentor and still is a mentor in my life would be my father, um, who's been very influential and and a great counsel for me through the good, the bad, um, and sometimes a bit of the bullshit test on things. And then I found myself probably in my mid-20s experiencing a big change in the organisation I worked in. Uh, First time you experience a restructure, first time you experience, you know, a CEO being made redundant um, or the amalgamation of multiple businesses, um, you know, merging into one. And I had a a new CEO coming to the organisation to lead that business forward. And um, he was and still is a a great mentor and and friend of mine and challenged, you know, the hell out of me. And I think at the time I probably didn't badge him mentor. Um, I think we all have those experiences where someone is actually very much influencing our lives and becoming a counsel to what we do. And, um, And we always tend to think it's someone that's a bit older in that mentor capacity as well. And, um, and then probably two or three years later, I remember coming across a woman who had a very, you know, aligned background to where I wanted to go career-wise. And I thought she was so charismatic, influential in this meeting that I went to. And I said, I don't really know how to ask this. I don't really know what's the way you go around it, but I'm just going to send you an email and say, you know, will you be my mentor? And I remember she rang me and said, Formal, informal, structured, unstructured, what time? And I don't know. Um, I just want someone to talk to. And it started that way where we informally would have calls or I'd come across a roadblock at work. And she still remains that person and, and good friend over that time. So I think there's an element of formality that can come through with mentors where sometimes you're facing a challenge or sometimes you're trying to plan out life and just consider things and you want, you know, varying insights around that. So hence, you know, this podcast for FFN and and getting different insights from a range of people. And sometimes, you know, you just have, you know, informal and they just naturally become a mentor um, through that experience. And I also think, you know, one key thing for me around mentors is we always place this emphasis on it, someone older than us or someone more experienced than us. 
and in many cases peer-to-peer mentoring I think also is um, is a crucial part of everyone's development and also you know mentee to mentor so as I said I've mentored um, a few people and um, older and younger than me and that experience back from mentees and different challenging back or queries allow you as a mentor to have your own reflections and, and growth as well so that's probably been my experience, still part of it, probably 15 years later, still still mentoring and being mentored. Uh, but I think it's a crucial thing for anybody through their career to identify some of those actors and, and influencers and utilise those networks. It really is a part of that um, yeah. as part of your growth. Yeah. It's really about cherry picking the best out of the vast array of people that you end up meeting through the workplace, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think also... Sometimes you can find those golden nuggets where you least expect them, you know. So sometimes you can having a conversation with someone who, you know, you wouldn't necessarily come across in your every day to day. And I think that's that taking the chance to meet other people, pushing yourself to get out of your boundaries. And sometimes those little what I call Oprah, you know, our heart moments can come from where you least expect. Mm. Yeah. You sound like you're a pretty busy lady, Georgie, travelling the length and depth of Australia in terms of agricultural projects through KPMG. How do you prioritise work-life balance? We know it's an important factor Mm. of of having a healthy work-life. Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting one. I think I've had varying um, goes at work-life balance and I think it, it definitely flexes at different stages throughout your career. I remember being in my 20s and probably flogged myself to death that, you know, you were doing the ridiculous hours, trying to back it up with all your social commitments and um, and really burning that candle at both ends, which is, you know, another cliche around work-life balance. And I actually probably had a turning point in my career in 2017. I was in a job that probably challenged every fibre of my body, um, both my mental state, my emotional state, my professional capacity. And I made a decision um, at that point in time that I was going to remove myself from that workplace and um and I gave you know quite a quite a bit of notice and it was just that bit around you know not feeling satisfied not getting this putting a lot of time and energy into something that um wasn't providing I guess that life return and um and I so finished up at the end of 2017 with no job nowhere to go um thinking I need a bit of a change of tact and um and go and explore some other opportunities and I signed myself up for three to four months of overseas travel and I jumped on a plane and, and left. And then I think for me coming back into the workplace, so I had nine months off and then you walk into a company like KPMG and um, and it's, you know, quite a demanding thing. But I think I had a bit of a refresh and a recheck on, you know, priorities and just, you know, sometimes you actually need to say no and set those boundaries for yourself. And so for me I know that during the week it's long. You know, I do a lot of travel you've got to get stuff done, you know, you've got multiple clients you have a responsibility to, you need to be available for them, you need to be available for your team, you need to be available for the business. But for me, I then try and make sure that when I go home at night, unless it's crucial, whatever time that might be, um, that I try and not turn on the laptop. And yes, you check your phone and you know emails are going on, um, but not respond to them till the next day unless they're crucial. And on weekends now really trying to quarantine that time to say, you know, You've gone pretty hard during the week, 60, 70, 80 hour week, um, time to, to have the weekend. Yeah, because I think one thing, and I'm lucky in a business like KPMG, they realise is that, you know, we do go hard and then everybody needs that time to have some, you know, 
resuscitation, if you can call it that. So I'm not sure there's a silver bullet to work-life balance. I think it depends on your job. I think it depends on where you are in your career. Um, But I think you learn something coming out of your 20s into your 30s of, oh, hang on a sec, you know, actually I need to create some time for myself and I need to value myself and, you know, not give everything to everybody and, and probably be a little bit more not protective of your time but valuing of your time and where your priorities sit from a personal level yeah Yeah. i'm sure if there's any nugget in there but um you know i think everybody's got to define what work-life balance is for themselves yeah yeah and i think weekends you know making that time for yourself is a really important component of that exactly what are you most proud of in your career today what's that kind of shining light golden nugget oh i think that's a really hard question i still feel like probably maybe my best years are to come. I don't know if, um, if I have we'll a shining or have a shining light. Um, but I think for me, one of the biggest things, and I always say this to my team, is celebrate the small wins, you know, because I think we always, and I was only talking to a friend about it on the weekend, you know, always set this five-year and ten-year ambition on things. And when I get to that age, I'll do this. And when I get to this part in my career, I'll do that. And in actual fact, you know, it's that, again, another cliche, like life's like happening journeys, the destination really. And, you know, I say to my guys, you know, let's not wait till the end of a job to say, you know, how did we do with that? When you have small little things each day of just, oh, God, we got through that day, stop and just celebrate that, you know, we survived that or we did this or we delivered that because sometimes it's those small wins. And I think maybe what I'm proud of most now is my ability to self-reflect and to, you know, analyse different parts of my career and things that have happened with a different lens. Yeah. Not I sure. Guess, <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And I think, um, you know, that's a really important component and mm. I think getting off the treadmill every now mm. and then and saying, oh, actually we achieved something really big. Yeah. yeah, look, probably quitting my job without having anywhere to go. Yeah. Um, and backing myself to do that is probably something that I am, yeah, pretty proud of. In terms of personal leadership style or what you aspire to be in terms of a leader in, in KPMG, what, what are the key qualities that you're looking to portray or adopt? Yeah, look, I think for me, uh, leadership at a personal level is, I'm, I'm a bit more about being real. I think that um, having had some experiences where you take on leadership positions at a younger age, you feel this sense to portray a particular style or a particular image or, you know, operate in a particular way. And I think I've learned over the years that that just doesn't work for me. Um, You know, I do use the odd swear word. I do use a bit of humour. You know, I'm someone that's, you know, you kind of, I am what you say really and you, you kind of get what you get. And for me about being a leader is about, you know, empowering my team or empowering who I'm working with to do their best and to do it in a way that is authentic to who they are as well and their different styles and knowing the different characteristics and styles of of the people you work with and the people that you're leading. And I think that for me within a firm like KPMG, I mean, we have a lot of leaders and leadership at all levels. And I think that's also a key thing that we don't always have to look up for the leaders in an organisation. Many times the leaders are coming, you know, middle of the organisation, entry level of an organisation right the way through. But to me, if I was true to myself and my leadership style, it would just be, 
you know, being real and being genuine in what I do and being personable, um, getting the job done and, and delivering, you know, what you say you'll deliver, but in a way that brings some warmth, some personality and, um, you know, some inspiration for the people around you. Yeah. Okay, you're stuck on a desert island indefinitely. Yeah. What are you taking with you? <laughs> Oh, what am I taking with me? Probably no mobile phone reception no, on a desert island not. at all. Um, if you're on your own, you probably don't need your swimmers, but I would have said, you know, <laughs> if you're on a desert island, you probably want your swimmers um, and something to do. Oh, Kindle? Can I take a Kindle? Yes. Yeah, okay, I can take a Kindle. So probably take a Kindle um, and make sure it's fully stocked before I knew I was going to end up on this <laughs> desert island. Um, so have you got a bit of reading to catch up on? Yeah, I've got a lot of reading to catch up on. I've got a lot of books that I'm three quarters of the way through. <laughs> Some that are hard, um, hard cover as well as on the Kindle. Um, what would I take? I don't know, Mary. What would I take on a desert island? Well, tell us about what's top on the list of the reading material then. Oh, gosh. I've got probably six months worth of company directors' magazines oh, sitting thrill. on my desk at home. Um, I think the one that I last looked at had the Australian cricket team on the front cover and <laughs> looking at boards. Um, I love the company directors' magazine. That's, that's always a one for me. Uh, look, when I get the time to read on a plane, I'll always indulge in a bit of Harvard Business Review and pick up that latest magazine. Uh, and then I do, I like to read, you know, leader stories and, and some of those sort of whether they be autobiographies or biographies. And, you know, I've read Gals Kelly's one recently and, and that was a really good read and insightful read of someone that, um, you know, has not been only influential in Australian business but um, internationally as well. And I, you know, I'm a sucker. I'm still trying to get through Michelle Obama's book oh, as well. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> I've opened it and tried it several times. I've got it on audio now. Yeah, so. I think I, yeah. Audio makes me go to sleep though. That's my issue. It <laughs> makes me too tired. So there's a lot on the reading list. Um, there's probably several just industry email newsletters I could probably catch up on. But I just, I don't think I'm ever on top of the reading at right. all. So maybe yeah. we will order that desert island yeah. holiday for you. <laughs> and no email in the meantime. Yeah, yeah it would be good. So, I mean, as you're aware, um, FFN supports young people who are developing in the ag industry. What do you see as the biggest challenges or opportunities for FFN members? I think the biggest opportunity for a member of FFN is just, you know, from the organisation is the network. I think for me, I got involved in FFN in 2007, so several years ago. And some of the people that I met in FFN, you know, 12 years ago, I'm still friends with now. And I still, you know, I don't talk to them every day, I don't see them every day, but there's still people in industry that I can ring up, have a yarn with, and they come from various parts of, of the sector. And I'm a bit of a believer that you only get out of these sorts of things what you put in. And I think the struggle and challenge with membership organisations is we all assume we pay X and they're going to give us everything. And sometimes, um, you know, you actually need to lean in and, and give a little bit and participate in the activities or the offerings of those organisations. So I would highly recommend for any FFN member to take advantage of, you know, bursaries, to take advantage of scholarship opportunities, to take advantage of, you know, whether they be particular industry programs, get to the Young Beef Producers Forum, get along to some of those local networking opportunities and and you know participate and interact with different parts of the network because you know as I say there is such a diverse you know base within FFM 
on-farm, off-farm industry, government, private, public companies, and having that network and building that network in your career is so crucial um, to, you know, give you that support and give you that scaffolding as you move through your career. So I think, you know, the biggest opportunity for FFM members is to be part of the network, the, the big N in the name. And I think career-wise for FFN members, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're on a wave, we're on a good wave for food and agribusiness. Um, I think that, you know, this next iteration in the industry around, you know, 4.0 and the true kind of digital change that we will see come through. I think we've been dabbling in it, um, you know, things like ag tech, things like startups, IoT, you know, we've had a lot of individual companies and products and offering come on board, um, some with varying levels of success. And I think, you know, what we'll see now is that next kind of grouping up of a lot of these offerings into greater digital ecosystems. And I think, you know, the true application and opportunity of digital and tech, whether that be from an on-farm productivity perspective, whether that be around market access and opportunity, you know, to strengthen things in a trade perspective, uh, you know, I don't think we truly appreciate what opportunity that's going to bring and so I think for this generation um, all those you know starting their career or you know in the early parts of their career being across that and engaged in that is a really exciting transformation that we're going to see in the next five to ten years really come through the sector. It's all ahead of us isn't it? It is yeah. I guess parting words Georgie you know we spoke about 20 year old Georgie a little bit earlier on what what message would you give to her I guess, from 2019, looking back? Yeah, look, probably a few key points. Um, you know, one is a bit of a, like, well done. <laughs> you know, you, you, <laughs> you got here. You, you got here, you stuck at it. And, um, and, you know, I look back at my career and I've had so much fun, you know. I think when you're in the trenches sometimes and you're having those shitty days, and you're thinking, God, I'm the shit kicker, you know, or I'm the one that's having to do all this stuff, you know, be patient as well. I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, looking at my 20-year-old self to my 34, nearly 35-year-old self is that, you know, you're always in a rush to get the next promotion, to move through this, to get to that. And I think you need those experiences in your 20s. I think you need to have a couple of years in a role and settle in and, and get some runs on the board and feel like you've achieved a few things before you move on to the next thing. And so I'd say, you know, be, be patient. And I think there were times when I was not as patient as I probably could have been. And, you know, just to give yourself a break. Um, I think that we all forget sometimes that like, we are really human and, you know, we all have our own emotional selves and, and human selves to, to deal with. And it probably took me until my 30s or, you know, some challenges. I mean, you know, I've had mental health struggles and I've gone through bouts of depression and, you know, bouts of, um, you know, serious lacking of self-confidence um, where you question everything. And I think coming out into your 30s, you're probably a little bit more comfortable with your weaknesses. I think you spend your 20s trying to fix every weakness. And I think I say to myself now, you know, there are things I'm just never going to bother with. It's just not going to be me. Um, so to my 20-year-old self is, yeah, appreciate those periods sometimes that are challenging as you truly do grow and to be patient through some of those and continue to build that self-reflection and a little bit of you know make sure you look back and and you do celebrate um, some of those kind of milestones and personal achievements that you had 
and look after yourself. I think that's the key thing. I think, you know, I burnt myself pretty hard in my 20s and I'm probably at a different pace and, and mindset around that now and I probably would have said back to my 20-something-year-old self, maybe woo up a bit <laughs> on the weekend, saying that on a Monday morning, but, um, you know, and and find a bit more of that balance and, um, yeah, immerse yourself as, as much as you can. So, yeah, they're probably the key things for I me. Think, you know, being true to yourself, Georgie, definitely something that's come through in this chat this morning and also, you know, take the time, look back and, you know, celebrate those small wins, Um because they all will accumulate mm. over time and yeah. be big wins when they you do. look back on them. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's Not been an problem. absolute pleasure to catch up with you. No, it's been great. And, you know, I have to say for any FFM members, you know, out there, as I said, you know, lean in, participate, get involved and leverage the hell out of the network that is the Future Farmers Network. Great. Thanks, Georgie. No worries. Well, that's it for another month. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts via Facebook or Twitter or via our email address, which is admin at futurefarmers.com.au. We'd also love your suggestions for future guests. So let us know if you've got an agricultural mentor that you'd love to hear from, and we'll do our best to host them on the pod. We look forward to joining you with another mentor next month.